Good afternoon, everyone. Good to see everybody. I'm glad all of you made it down here safely or up here, whichever whichever it was, down or up or whatever. <laughs> uh, we were kind of expecting another couple to be here, <clears throat> the Colossians from Australia, and they had intended earlier in the year in uh, coming, but... Uh, Evidently, due to circumstances, they weren't able to make it, uh, but they did tell me that they would be thinking of us and praying for us, and so I wanted to send along their greetings, and perhaps we'll get a chance to sign a card later during the feast and mail it to them. When men talk about building a better future, when they speak of solving the world's problems, when they talk about peace and security, what is it that they focus on typically? What do human beings generally perceive as the key or the keys to a, a successful future? What do they perceive as the means to achieving a happier society or a better world? Who and what do they look to for solutions? Do they look to God? Or do they look to themselves or other men? Now, we happen to be in an election here, here in the United States currently. What are the politicians talking about? Are they saying, if we want a better future, let's turn to God? Let's get to know God and follow His ways. Let's let Christ rule and He'll give us the peace, the happiness and security we all seek. Have you heard any of the politicians saying that? <laughs> or do they say, for a better future, let's look to Jesus Christ to exercise mercy, justice, and righteousness. Unless I've missed something, that's not what the politicians are saying. <laughs> when they're not slinging mud at their opponent, what they're saying in effect is, trust me, I have the wisdom, I have the experience to lead the nation and solve its problems. They trust in their own wisdom and their own abilities. For security, they trust in human might for protection or in lieu of that, making deals with our potential enemies. We might ask, can human beings who would hold the right, the reins of government, can they solve our problems, that is the nation's problems, the world's problems, with their proposals? Do they have the power, the knowledge to solve the serious economic problems we face as a nation? Can or will they put an end, for example, to the ballooning debt which threatens to destroy our nation economically? Can or will the politicians solve the problems of terrorism, of racial strife, of crime and other serious problems plaguing the nation? In Jeremiah 9 verse 23 we read this, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man 
glory in his riches. Now, why would God say this? Why would God tell us not to glory in these things that humans tend to glory in? Could it be because men do tend to glory in their wisdom and their might and their riches to produce the long-sought utopia, as it's often called, the, the perfect world, the world of peace and universal prosperity? <clears throat> Nobel laureate physicist Robert Millikan wrote in 1928, and I'm quoting here <clears throat> Robert Millikan, he said or wrote, the great instruments of progress for mankind are research, the discovery of new knowledge and education, the passing on of the store of accumulated wisdom to our followers. Research, new knowledge, education, passing on our wisdom to the future generations. That's what he said is the key to human progress. In 1890, R.H. Thurston, scientist and engineer, expressed the hope that advances in man's science would, in his words, continually add to the sum of human happiness in the world and make it continually easier to prepare for a better world and brighter. He believed that science, that is man's wisdom, might as it progressed usher in, as he put it, a true millennial introduction into the unseen universe and glorious life that every man would gladly hope for. In 1896, Edward Byrne wrote in the Scientific American magazine, quote, rejoicing in our strength and capabilities, our strength and capabilities, the new light of man's power and destiny breaks more clearly over us. We rest in the assurance of positive knowledge that human ingenuity knows no limit. End quote. He credited science with the power to create a new heaven and a new earth. Today, these quotes were from more than 100 years ago, or about 100 years ago, or more, but today this is still how human beings tend to think. They think that their knowledge will enable them to create a new and better world. That's what the politicians promise pretty much every election cycle. Not only a new and better world, but there are those among us who look forward to invading, inhabiting, and exploiting the heavens as well. They don't just want to create a better world, they want to inhabit the universe some. They think that man is fit to do that. Man does indeed trust in his own wisdom and his own might. Nations build up huge arsenals of weapons to guarantee peace. Men and women who are wealthy often trust in their own riches as they pursue the good life through acquiring more and more money. But the warning of God is that man's trusting of himself, his own knowledge, his own might, his own riches, 
will lead him to the ultimate disaster. In Matthew 24, verse 21, Jesus said, For then, speaking of the future time, there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, <clears throat> no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So Jesus warned that there would come a time of great tribulation. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that unless that tribulation was brought to an end, <clears throat> that no flesh would survive it. A few verses later in verse 29, Jesus said immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now it's no accident that <clears throat> the coming of the Son of Man follows on the heels of what is called the Great Tribulation. And along with that tribulation, a series of catastrophes the like of which the world has never seen, at least this side of the flood. The Feast of Tabernacles, which we are observing today, is about not a man-made utopia that people have dreamed of but never been able to achieve. It is about the real millennium, the real utopia that shall be established at Christ's return. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 9 verse 24, we find this, these words, let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. As we observe this feast, we're going to be focusing on coming to better know and understand God and looking to God for guidance and direction and the solutions to our problems. In the days of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the nation of Judah was in peril from enemies that they faced who had come up against them to destroy them. Now Jehoshaphat was one of the few righteous kings in the history of Israel and Judah, and he had sought God, and he had led the nation in uh, in them returning to God and in 2nd Chronicles chapter 19 it says so Jehoshaphat this is verse 4 2nd Chronicles 19 Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the mountains of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord God of their fathers then he set judges in the land throughout all the fortified cities of Judah city by city and said to the judges, 
Take heed to what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you in the judgment. Can you imagine a president appointing judges to the Supreme Court and telling, <laughs> telling them that? <clears throat> now therefore let the fear of the Lord come be upon you. Take care and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, no partiality nor taking of bribes. So this is what Jehoshaphat said to the people that were appointed as judge in the land, in the land, judges in the land of Judah at that time. Now because Jehoshaphat had sought God and had sought to rid the nation of idolatry and bring it back to God, God looked with favor upon him and his kingdom. But as I said, a mighty army of Ammonites, Moabites, and probably Edomites, or at least people from the area of where the Edomites dwelt, came up against Judah to destroy it. And what did Jehoshaphat do? Well, it tells us in the next chapter, in Second Chronicles chapter 20, it happened beginning with verse, uh, verse 1 after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat saying a great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea from Syria and they are in Hazazon Tamar which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord and from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of the land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham your friend forever? And they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now here are the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. But they turned from them and did not destroy them. Here they are rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession which you have given us to inherit. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Our eyes are upon you. They were looking to God. And by the way, the title of this sermon is Look to God. Now all Judah with their little ones and their wives and their children stood before the Lord. 
Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, uh, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of uh, 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 Jeiel, the son of Madaniah, a uh, Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid or dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but the God's. Tomorrow go down against them. They will surely come up by the, by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and one of the and of the children of the Korahites stood up, stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. And they rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. As they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who stood, or appointed those who should sing to the Lord, and who should praise the beauty of holiness, as they went out before the army, and were saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. Now when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come up against Judah, and they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped destroy one another. So when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude and there were dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away the spoil, they found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies and precious jewelry, which they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry away. And there were three days gathering the spoil because there was so much. And on the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Baraka, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place was called the Valley of Baraka until this day. Then they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem with Jehoshaphat in front of them to go back to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. So they came to Jerusalem with stringed instruments and harps and trumpets to the house of the Lord, and the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. Then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet for his God gave him rest all around. This shows what can happen when nations and leaders look to God for deliverance and protection. Now, 
this wasn't done in a vacuum, morally and spiritually. Leading up to this, as we mentioned, Jehoshaphat had made great efforts to restore the nation to a condition of obedience and faith toward God. To remove the idols, to get rid of all of the abominations that had filled the land. The nation had responded and had to a large degree turned, at least for a time being, to God. And Jehoshaphat, when he was faced with this catastrophe, was not boasting about his own strength and power, but he went to God with the situation and asked for God's intervention. Contrast that with the situation that we face in our nation today. Today our leaders and our people have cast God's laws behind their backs. The world's leaders seek to create a utopian world order apart from God. They, they, they don't have any place for God in their schemes and plans. But their efforts are designed to fail, as they always have in the past. It will not be man who ushers in a utopia, but it will be God who brings about a world free of war, of terrorism, of crime waves, of race riots, a world free of oppression, of poverty. And such a world will be created not through man's knowledge or wisdom or his devising through his might or wealth, but it will be created as a result of Jesus Christ's rule and of him exercising mercy, judgment, and righteousness in the world. And there are many prophecies that foretell of the coming of Jesus Christ to establish such a world. One of them is Psalm 96, beginning with verse 1, where it says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name, proclaim the good news of His salvation from day to day. Yes, we're to proclaim the good news of His salvation. Declare His glory among the nations, His wonders among all peoples, for the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Now notice, it's not just speaking here to the people of Israel, but to the whole world. It says, give the Lord the glory, do his name, bring an offering and come to his courts. O oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. This is looking forward to the time when the Lord will reign. 
over the earth, literally. The Lord reigns, the world is also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. In other words, what it's talking about is, is a world that is stable. Not, it's not talking about the globe, which has long, long ago uh, the Catholics misunderstood and perverted this scripture to claim that the earth does not move and therefore everything moves around the earth, which is not the way the solar system is designed. <clears throat> but that's not talking about the physical globe. It's talking about a world, a worldwide society that is stable and at peace. And it says, he shall judge the peoples righteously. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar into all of its fullness. Let the field be joyful and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. Of course, this is metaphorical language, but it's speaking of, in a sense, the whole creation rejoicing because of the reign of Jesus Christ. For he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. And this is what we are celebrating in observing the Feast of Tabernacles. We're celebrating that day, that time, when Jesus Christ will have come to the earth and is, has established his rule over the whole world, over all the nations of the earth. And at that time, we're told that the world itself will observe a feast. The Feast of Tabernacles points to a much larger, larger feast that will, in a sense, last for a thousand years and beyond that, for that matter. But, but in Isaiah 25, verse 6, it says, In this mountain, the Lord of hosts, this mountain being the nation of Israel and, and uh, in, a, in a larger sense the government of God the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice places a feast of wines on the lees of fat things full of marrow of well refined wines on the lees and he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people the veil that is spread over all nations Today, the world walks in spiritual darkness and blindness. Most people in the world are totally oblivious to the Feast of Tabernacles, not, not to mention the rest of the Holy Days, and their meaning. They have no conception. It never even enters their thoughts to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, much less understand what it means in terms of the world's future. But that veil of spiritual darkness and blindness will be removed when Jesus Christ returns. The world is going to be re-educated and the great deceiver will have been removed who has kept the world in blindness and darkness for thousands of years and <clears throat> in place of darkness will be light and understanding. And it goes on to say in verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. 
and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now, right now, we're in that waiting period. But while we're waiting, we're looking forward to the time when these promises will be fulfilled. And we're given a considerable information in the prophecies of the Bible about what will characterize Christ's rule and make it different from what we've experienced for the last 6,000 years and what we're experiencing now. Christ's rule will be characterized by mercy, by judgment, and righteousness. And it is through these that he will bring about peace, security, happiness, and prosperity on a universal scale. In Psalm 89, verse 2, it says, For I have said, Mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. And notice how mercy is emphasized here. And going on in verse 14, it says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. The very foundation of the throne, so to speak, the rule of Jesus Christ will be based on these principles, righteousness and justice. And mercy and truth. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. In your name they shall rejoice all the day long. And in your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and in your favor our horn is exalted. Just as the nation of Judah and its king was given salvation by the intervention of God. So we will be looking to God in the future. The whole world will be looking to God. And his favor is through his favor that mankind will be exalted. That mankind will be restored in salvation given to the earth. And it will be through the looking to God, rejoicing in Jesus Christ, not rejoicing in man's powers, man's wisdom, man's capabilities apart from God, but they will be looking to Christ and rejoicing in Him, and it is in His righteousness that they will be exalted. The world will, uh, the, the time will come to pass when there will be a utopia, so to speak, on the earth. 
but it will be through a different route than humans have heretofore sought it. <clears throat> and there's a great deal in the Bible about the mercy that will be extended to the earth at that time. In Micah 7, in verse 18, it says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? Yes, Israel will have to go through a period of tribulation, but it says that God will ultimately pardon their iniquity and pass over the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. In Psalm 85, beginning with verse 1, we have a prayer here of one who is trusting in God and looking to God for his mercy. And it says, Bow down your ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am holy. You are my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry to you all day long. <clears throat> Rejoice the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And going on in verse 7, it says, In the day of my trouble I will call upon you, for you will answer me among the gods there is none like you. O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. And this is partly what is also pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles is a time when the entire world, every nation on earth, will come before God to worship Him. And their idols will be smashed and abandoned. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. And I will glorify your name forevermore. For great is your mercy toward me. And you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol or the depths of the grave. That mercy that God extends to humankind coupled with righteousness will produce blessings. God's mercy will provide security for the nations and freedom from disease. Can you imagine that? A world free of disease? Diseases which afflict and claim the lives of millions and millions of people in the world every year. 
In Isaiah 50, Isaiah 33, and verse 17, it says, Your eyes will see the king and his beauty. They will see the land is, that is very far off. Your heart will meditate on terror. Where is the scribe? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? You will not see a fierce people, a people of, of obscure speech, beyond perception of a stammering tongue that you cannot understand. And remember, this was the case with ancient Israel. When the Assyrians invaded, they were a fierce people. And they were a people of a different language. And the people could not understand the people of Israel who are being uh, decimated, their nations being raised to the ground, or their cities being raised to the ground, the people being carried captive, who could not understand their speech. And this is telling of a different situation, the opposite situation where no longer will the people stand in fear of an invading army, of fierce countenance in a, in a foreign language. <clears throat> Look upon Zion, the city of, your, of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. Now, in ancient times, God allowed the city of Jerusalem to be uh, overtaken by enemies and destroyed. But when Christ comes back the second time and establishes his throne in Jerusalem, that will never happen again. But instead, it says, there the majestic Lord will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams in which no galley with oars will sail nor majestic ships pass by. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. People will be not looking to their might and their strength or their weapons for protection. They'll be looking to God. Your tackle is loosed, it says in verse 23, they could not strengthen their mass, they could not spread the sail. Then the prey of great plunder is divided, the tame, the lame take the prey. Talking about God triumphing over his enemies. And the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. The people in Jerusalem will not get sick. The people on the earth, once Jesus Christ firmly establishes his rule, won't be getting sick. They won't be getting the kinds of diseases that we see plaguing the earth now. 
The people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. In Psalm 103, we see the character of God's mercy and it says, bless Psalm, Psalm 103 and verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is with me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities and who heals all your diseases. Now, we don't see this universal healing occurring now. And God does not heal everybody's diseases. He does not heal all of our diseases right now. And some have thought that this is some kind of a promise that if you pray to God and you're genuine and you're repentant, God will automatically heal you every time you get sick. That's not the case. That's not a promise God makes. But there will come a time when God will, will heal everyone's diseases. And there won't be any people getting sick, period. There will come a time when God will heal all of our diseases. But that may not be right now. But there will be a time when he does that if we're faithful. Who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. And really, this would include the vast bulk of mankind who down through the ages, most human beings have lived under the boot of oppression and slavery of one kind or another. He made known his ways to Moses his acts to the children of Israel, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. You know, if God were not merciful, if not God were not abundantly merciful, the world would have been turned to ashes a long time ago. It's only because of God's mercy that we continue to live on this earth. But God is also a God of justice and judgment. And when necessary, he punishes. But in verse 9 it says, He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. For he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Now some people take exception to the idea that God would ever punish anyone because isn't Jesus supposed to be all about love and, and um, forgiveness Jesus is surely uh, Jesus would not hold anyone to account for their deeds or punish anyone with it, would he that's how a lot of people look at it and that's why a lot of the ministers have taught people falsely, assuring them that it doesn't really matter what they do 
because Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins and he has been righteous in our place and so we don't need to worry about uh, how we behave. But that's not what the Bible actually teaches. At the same time, though, it is true that God has not punished us according to our iniquities, has he? If he had, we'd all be dead already. But God is merciful and God wants to forgive us. He wants to forgive us. That's why he sent Jesus Christ. So that he could forgive our sins and at, at the same time, his demand for justice would be taken care of. But God wants to forgive us. But he also wants us to repent. But as it goes on to say here in verse 11, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. If we want to be the recipients ultimately of God's grace, we have to learn to fear God. That is, show reverence and respect toward God. But once that is accomplished, then God removes our sins from us and has no memory of them. For as heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. Sometimes we forget that we're dust and we think we're going to live forever and we can get away with anything. but we are dust and we're temporary and we need to remember that there is a righteous God in heaven who judges the earth and he judges nations as well as individuals. Verse 17 it says, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. If we want to ultimately be the recipients of God's mercy, we need to acknowledge God as sovereign. We need to keep his covenant, and we need to obey his commandments, remembering them, being mindful of them, and striving to put them into practice in our lives. And the kind of world that men dream of, the utopian order that men have written about and spoken of, will only follow upon repentance and forgiveness. In Psalm 32 and verse 1, says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and, whose, and, in, whose, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. We're not living in a world today filled with people in whose spirit there is no deceit. We're in a world where lying and deception is the norm. Where in today's world it seems leaders and politicians are expected to lie. They're expected to do evil. They're expected to be duplicitous, which for the most part they are. Nobody even expects them to attempt to actually practice godliness or righteousness or honesty. Can you imagine Abraham Lincoln <laughs> in today's world trying to run for president <laughs> whose policy he said, he said, honesty is the best policy. <laughs> He'd be left uh, out of the arena probably. But this says, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in, in whose spirit there is no deceit. We're going to have to learn to quit lying and to be honest and truthful with ourselves and with other people and with God. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, but my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Now this is speaking of one who is aware of his sins. But then it says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And this is really what we should be doing more or less daily going to God and confessing our sins when we do sin and seeking God's forgiveness. But this is what the entire world is going to do at the time of Christ's coming. The whole world is going to be brought to the point where they are prepared to acknowledge their sins, confess them to God and seek repentance. It goes on to say, For this cause everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. And this is what Jesus Christ will be doing. This is what his government will be doing once he establishes his rule on the earth. He will be forgiving people of their sins, but he will be instructing and guiding and teaching them. And he says, Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. God doesn't want to have to control us with fear 
and with a lot like you would control an animal where he's got to put you on a, a bridle and basically dictate your movements. What God wants us to do is look at his commandments and come into agreement with them and of our own volition strive to keep them with his help. He wants us to have those laws residing, living in our hearts and minds, motivating us, directing our thoughts and actions. Now Jesus Christ is going to rule on the earth and he is going to enforce his laws. But more importantly, he's going to teach them so that people can come to understand and appreciate and obey them because they want to obey them because they can see the benefits and the blessings of obeying his word they can see that God will protect them that he will pour out all sorts of blessings on them and even grant them eternal life in the end and it says in verse 10 here many sorrows shall be to the wicked but he who trusts in the Lord mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So mercy is going to play a key role in producing a world without fear, without sorrow, without all of the evil things that plague the world today. A utopia, if you will. But that millennial setting will be produced by judgment and righteousness as well, which go along with mercy. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 3, it says, You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy they rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil for you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian this is speaking of the time when God will lift the burden of oppression from the shoulders of mankind the great oppressor will be removed and disposed of. And they will rejoice as men who have been freed and liberated. In verse 6 it says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with just judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So notice the government is going to be established with judgment and justice. 
And the, the judging that is done will be righteous judgment. It will be true judgment and according to truth. And because of righteousness and judgment, there will be no crime. There will be universal security and peace on the earth. In Isaiah 32 and verse 1, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. Notice he is reigning in righteousness. And princes will rule with justice. You're not going to have kangaroo courts. You're not going to have courts where people who are filled with iniquity and lawlessness are sitting in the judgment seat. You're not going to have courts where people will take bribes to render unjust decisions. And you're not going to have criminals being let loose on society to prey upon the innocent and the weak. Instead, as it says in verse 2, a man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. If you walk down the streets of many of our cities, especially at night, but say you're a woman alone walking down the street at night and you see a man in the shadows up ahead. Do you look at, would you be, be likely to look at that as, oh, I'm glad to see that man up there because, <laughs> because I know that uh, if there's trouble, he'll help me. Or would you have feelings of trepidation? Say you're walking in East St. Louis, for example. <laughs> But that's not how it's going to be in the future. If you're in that situation, you're out alone or you're in trouble and you see other people, you're going to welcome that sight because a man, as you approach, will be like a hiding place from the wind, like a, a river of water in a dry place, a welcome sight. The eyes of those who see will not be dim. And the ears of those who hear will listen. Also the heart of the rash will understand knowledge. And the tongue of the stammerers will be ready to speak plainly. The foolish person will no longer be called generous. Nor the miser said to be bountiful. We won't have any corrupt foundations that are taking humongous amounts of money in a fraudulent type of charitable so-called enterprise. But there will be honesty and true justice. It says justice will dwell in the wilderness. Righteousness remain in the fruitful field. <clears throat> the work of righteousness will be peace. And the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. 
It is through justice, mercy, and righteousness that quietness and assurance and peace will prevail forever. My people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Now, isn't this what mankind has longed for down through the ages? To be able to dwell in safety and peace without fear, without want? This is what God is going to give mankind under Christ's rule. But, again, it's not going to happen in a vacuum. It's going to happen because of the nature of the ruler and his rule. And what is produced by his approach to government, which is to deal justly, to deal righteously, to deal truthfully, and to demand righteousness. In Isaiah 11 and verse 1, we see this principle also expressed. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch will grow out of its, his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. This is a picture where creatures that we, we regard as natural enemies shall be living at peace with one another. Now, whether this is to be taken literally of literal lambs and calves or is an illustration of the peace that will exist among nations I'm not I, I know it's the latter I'm not prepared to say for sure it will be the former but certainly this is talking about <clears throat> how the world is going to be changed how nations are going to live together in peace and people will live together in peace the cow and the bear shall graze their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play on by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So there won't be any threats to disturb the peace and to, to uh, put a uh, premature end to people's lives. In Psalm 72, beginning with verse 1, 
Now, I hope as we review these scriptures, we're actually thinking about what it would be like to live under this kind of reality. This is so far removed from anything that we've actually experienced that it's almost unimaginable. And yet this is the picture the Bible portrays of God's kingdom under Christ's rule. And it is a literal kingdom on this earth. This isn't some, some uh, imaginary fairy tale about going to heaven and rolling around heaven all day with nothing to do. People have plenty to do. This is talking about conditions on the earth after Jesus Christ returns to rule mankind. In Psalm 72 and verse 1 it says, Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your peoples with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains or the nations will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. Notice that peace, again, is the fruit of righteousness. By the way, if the whole world were practicing righteousness now, the world would be at peace now. We already have available to us the keys to peace. We're just not using them. But Christ will use them, and he will implement them, and the world will be living in peace. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure through all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish. Rather opposite to what we see today where often it's the wicked and the brutal and those who prey upon others that flourish. In his days the righteous shall flourish in abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from, riv from the river to the ends of the earth. His reign will be over the entire world. All nations will be ruled by Jesus Christ eventually as he establishes that dominion over the earth. Verse 11, it says, All kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. It goes on to say, verse 16, there will be an abundance of grain in the earth. On the top of the mountains, its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. 
and blessed be his glorious name forever and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. And in Isaiah 65, verse 17, it says, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. Not man's wisdom, not man's science. But God will be the one who creates the new heavens and the new earth. And the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. So, when you think about utopia, when you think about a world without war, without crime, without violence, without poverty, without disease, a world of abundance, of peace and joy that will last forever, look to God. 